Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, too much digital badge bling around my neck, Knockreiner. I'm with you on that. I had to put my bag through the security scanner three times heading home from Las Vegas because of all of the digital crap in there that looked super sketchy. I just remember the clacking of wearing the DEF CON badge and our badges walking around click, 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 thinking they're going to short at any second. Yep, 100%, man. Bad flashbacks for that one. Anyways, on today's podcast, as you might have been guessing, uh, we are discussing all things Hacker Summer Camp. We'll go over our Capture the Flag contest from Black Hat and DEF CON, and then discuss a few of our favorite talks that we saw over the course of the, the last week and a half or so now as you're listening to this. Uh, with that, though, uh, let's go ahead and hack our way in. So let's start today with uh, a chat about my personal favorite part about Hacker Summer Camp this year, um, and that was our Capture the Flag contest. Uh, so I know we had your favorite part. It. I think it took over your summer camp. Yeah, it, it definitely did. I went to quite a few uh, fewer talks than I anticipated going to, largely because I was like happily interacting with participants of this uh, CTF contest. Um, so I know we briefly chatted about it on the last episode, but basically I think this is year number six, if my math is right, and year number four of our digital badge. Uh, but we showed up to uh, DEF CON and Black Hat in person again this time, and man, that was awesome just in its own. Um, and it also meant we were able to hand out our digital badges in person. Um, so we so we ran our Capture the Flag contest. Basically, there were like, what, 32 different puzzles and challenges ranging from basic like crypto and cypher by the things. way people probably want to know what you're talking about so when we talk about digital badges uh, this is our panda one uh this is our lion if you're watching on video uh if you are not if watching you on our to youtube see the link, youtube there's yeah. a beautiful blue panda with leds going on on it and another red lion with a bit of a derpy face but some red leds shining around on it too Little backstory, um, by the way, they both have screens and joysticks on them. You interact with them and do puzzles. Uh, the lion, or I'm sorry, the lion is WatchGuard's old animal. We were a red lion, but we acquired an endpoint company called Panda Security, and they happen to be a blue panda. Uh, both of these are actually technically zombies because we made them right when the pandemic started. And they have, uh, you'll have to bleep me editors, but they have a shitty add-on interface. And uh, yes, the, the bad word is correct. Uh, and we had masks. I don't have the mask on me, Mark, you did, but uh, the masks uh, uh, go over them for a pandemic joke. Yeah, when we, so uh, yeah, awesome CTF. When we were first designing them, we had this whole, like it was in early 2020 when we finalized the design. Like, oh yeah, this will surely blow over before uh, Black Hat and DEF CON later this year. Uh, clearly, it did not because it's now two years after the fact when we were finally able to hand out all 600 of them. Uh, basically, if you are a participant in the Capture the Flag contest and you did like nine of the first beginner challenges for them, um, you were able to get a code that you could then turn in to receive a badge in person uh, before we ran out. I think we gave away around 200 or so, if my math is right, at Black Hat, uh, so from our booth. Uh, to folks that were able to knock out some of the challenges in the first two days there. And then we gave away the other 400 pretty dang quickly at DEF CON uh, over the course of the, the next two days. We probably would have gotten 400 at Black Hat, but had a little battery issue on the first day. So couldn't give oh, them away as many there. But battery thank God issue. for the mysterious WatchGuard helpers who saved the day. Yeah, that's they, a, they, that's they want to remain anonymous. It turns out when you uh, try and ship four boxes of LiPo batteries uh, that look like a suicide vest in a box under a, uh, an x-ray, it tends to get the flags. Issue, Mark. <laughs> we ordered those boxes from what, China or Taiwan three years ago? Since then, yeah. LiPo shipping rules have changed in the US. We literally had a new LiPo shipping law that requires stickers on the box and other things. So I think it was really because we sent them how we got them. But in the three years they've been sitting in the warehouse, there's new rules. <laughs> yep. So uh, unfortunately, the end result of that was they were actually stuck in Tacoma, Washington, and we uh, were not 
made aware of that until Tuesday morning, so the day before Black Hat started. And so I was resigned to defeat at that point as we searched to see if we could scrounge together like more new batteries off Amazon or get them like overnighted from somewhere somehow. And luckily, as Corey mentioned, the day was saved by two anonymous watch guardians that road tripped from Seattle to Las Vegas to hand deliver these batteries to us so we could hand out the badges by uh, starting Thursday at Black Hat. Literally, they they saved the day. Uh, The CTF, I wouldn't say ruined, but we certainly wouldn't have been able to hand out badges because they wouldn't be working without power sources. And it like the two years of anticipation leading up to this would have been all for nothing. So props and hands off to them for that heroic That's feat off, yeah. of getting these batteries delivered. It's nuts. Yeah, there's a lot of interaction with our challenges that require the battery to be turned on to unlock things. By the way, before we go too much further into that, it, it is important to note that we're kind of mimicking, do you know badges are a big thing at, at DEF CON? Uh, if you haven't gone, if you're seeing video, this is the official DEF CON badge. You can see if you have the video, if you don't, it looks like a, a mini piano with partial keyboard. Uh, so obviously lots of puzzles hidden in the, the DEF CON badge and usually the lanyard has stuff too. Uh, fully working keyboard. And I can't go further position. than that because it's because it's uh, I don't know if you guys heard that, but I can't go further because it's uh, it's not a big enough keyboard. It's one single but this octave. This is the DEFCON one, and they're all over. You know, there's a here's a tour one for those. One of the talks I went to is how uh, Russians are kind of ev- uh, evading tour nodes. So uh, Corey's holding up a purple onion with purple LEDs yeah. on it. A cute lit up purple onion. It is kind of awkward though when the battery uh, is bigger <laughs> than the badge itself. That's so that's nuts. a little weird, but still, Tor is nice. And by the way, usually when you participate in things like the Darknet Bad Challenge and others, you you don't get a built badge. You get a, a badge that's unbuilt. And this isn't. This is one you traded, Mark. I don't have mine built, so there's a bag of parts. But what do you remember? What this one was? One's from a company called Compunet, and they designed it to look like a. Um, oh man, why is my brain escaping me? Back to the Future. Uh, wow. Okay. The I'm flux capacitor. Flux, flux capacitor. Cap- there we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah, cool. So anyways, if you got the video, it's cool to see these badges. They've blown up. But I think Mark's made a name for himself. If you go to uh, Twitter and look for the hashtag WGCTF, you'll see a lot of folks uh, showing our badges and talking about the challenge. I'm honored that a few of them said it was one of their favorite parts of DEF CON. So that's a yeah. huge honor. Falsely earned name for myself as well, too, since I had no part in the actual hardware design for it. That's all Zane. Uh, so yeah. Zane Zev on Twitter. Check Amazing out job Zane Zev. But yep. not false in that almost every cool puzzle, including the interactive botnet stuff, was something you coded. You you have the firmware on that sucker. So yes, huge shout outs to Zane Zev and even his father for creating the PCB. I mean, we started with kind of a crappy rectangular it looked like a firebox but it was so basic and now they have a full-out pcb design beautiful art shout out to i won't share the last name but courtney a graphic designer that helped us with it and by the way it's it's a little harder to do graphic design when you also have to pay attention to where chips and leds go so just great work by the team you did awesome yeah mark and to say it was a success is a massive understatement like we literally at one point had taken over the whole entry hall to the main defcon uh (laughs) area with people that were trying to uh gain new mutations on their badge and unlock more leds so it was really a little goon goon interaction there Uh, luckily we could bribe them with some badges a few of them and they were really nice but uh they really didn't want us taking up the whole hallway (laughs) yep so overall, though, CTF went super well. We are at a bit over 100 or 750 participants at this point, having completed at least one challenge. Again, you had to do nine to uh, earn a badge. Uh, seven folks have completed every single challenge, including some really difficult ones. Uh, Ryan on our team came up with a handful of reverse engineering ones where you actually need a decent amount of reversing knowledge in order to have a chance at passing them. Uh, I think those were certainly our most difficult ones uh, we've put together uh, in the history of his capture the flag and quite a few people have actually gotten past them as well too 
Um, if you are interested in trying out the challenges, the contest is officially over. We have a winner and a second and third place uh, individuals who completed the quickest. But the challenges themselves, we're going to leave up at least for a few months or so and then move them to the archive on the website where they will live till the end of time. Uh, it's WGCTF.com if you want to try them out. They start out pretty simple. Again, just basic puzzles and ciphers and things like that. And they go on to some fairly difficult crypto-related and reverse engineering-related problems, too. Uh, we are going to, somewhere down the line, ask for some input as well, too, from you listeners and people that have done the CTF on designing new challenges as well, too. So if you'd like to participate and uh, provide a challenge to the Capture Flag contest, keep an eye out for that as well, too. Um, but anyways, don't want to monopolize the whole show just chatting about how awesome our stuff is. Um, let's pivot now and actually talk about some of the things that we saw at Black Hat and DEF CON uh, talk-wise that uh, we thought were pretty cool. And Corey, I guess you want to start with you, pick out like a talk that you thought was interesting and um, what you took away from it, maybe? Yeah, there's a ton of talks. I went to many at Black Hat and DEF CON. Definitely saw uh, uh, the opening that was from Chris Krebs, which I'm not really going to talk about. It was industry, private, public sector partnership stuff. Uh, but Dark Tangent, also known as Jeff Moss, the creator, the original creator of both these conferences, started out with 20 minutes at the beginning. And it's always nice to see him talk. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, I think we've mentioned it before, but DEF CON is kind of the more hackery, sometimes black hat. It's what you would imagine a hacker conference to be. People come being themselves, there's drinking, you know, you have old dudes that are gray beards and normal shorts and clothes, but then you have both folks in emo clothes and there's costume parties. And so it, it, it can be what you might imagine sometimes this cliche, cliche hacker culture, but know that there's a lot of different types of hackers. Meanwhile, Black Hat is the, the more businessy conference, which makes sense now that it's sold to a real conference company. But I did just want to mention that uh, you know, Dark Tangent or Jeff Moss told the story of how Black Hat started. Uh, DEF CON is the original hacker summer camp, the original conference. I think it's been around for 30 years versus this was the 30 uh, year anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, it's Black Hat 26 or something like 25, that. 25, 25th 25. anniversary. Yeah. But really, the reason he, he shared exactly why Black Hat was made, I mean, these conferences were made when these guys were teenagers just for fun community irc you know very informal but after the first few years they got big enough that you know people who worked for vendors and organizations wanted to come and have it paid for but if you saw like the advertisements for defcon and the pictures at defcon no self-respecting business could really kind of justify sending people there so really black hat was simply created as a way for those hackers working at companies to have a reason to expense the conference, to make That's a more awesome. formal business oriented one that talked a little more on the defense side, but it really was just an excuse to have a more formal business looking conference that people could actually go to. And because of that, they could raise the price too, obviously. In fact, he said they had to raise the price to make it seem professional enough for businesses to come. So. I thought that anecdote was kind of funny. Well, anyways, a lot of talks, some more uh, more technical than others. So I might stick with some high level talks because they're kind of easier to understand on a podcast. I'll mention one I think we mentioned in passing on our show talking about what we're interested to seeing. But before uh, Black Hat and DEF CON, this talk, which was called Rollback Time, Agnost Time Agnostic Remote Keyless Entry, uh, which was given by Levente Siscor and Hoon Wei Liam, both Singaporean researchers. I apologize if I murdered your names. But this was about kind of uh, the keyless fobs for cars and breaking into them. And long story short, it's called rollback. There, there's something called uh you know relay attacks there's a couple of different ways you can break into cars some are relay attacks which is where you capture a real signal live and replay it and that's kind of a real-time attack you kind of have to 
to amplify your signal so it's bigger than the real keyless fob and you have to capture it real time. And there's replay attacks where you just can capture a signal and then replay it at a later date. It doesn't have to be the same time. And that's the, a more passive attack. And by the way, there's also signal jamming involved. Sometimes you have to jam the actual real uh, wireless key fob so that it can't get its signals because you want to be able to either relay it or replay it. In any case, to protect against things like relay attacks and especially replay attacks, uh, almost every keyless fob system has something called rolling codes now. And at a very simple level, a rolling code is just, you know, rather than broadcasting the same, let's call it digital key every single time you press unlock, which would be stupid because if someone captures that, they just can replay it forever. There's some sort of synchronization happening. You know, it's based on time and other seeds, both in the key fob and in the car itself, where every time you press the button, a unique code is made that's probably based on time and a few other things. And your car system is also basing its thing on, on a same seed and some sort of time too. And there's a little bit of... Uh, leeway in this because sometimes time gets a little unsynchronized between the fob and the key but long story short both the car and the key fob have agreed to some sort of secret so that they can set up every time you press unlock it creates a different code so that you can't just easily replay it however this talk, if, I, if I'm going to define, if I, uh, I'll explain it quickly. Basically, these guys were using smart radio. They were using, in fact, the exact same hack RF our research team has. And they were just capturing uh, these unlock codes over and over to do research. And it turns out the, the weird thing about talking to this is the researchers themselves still don't know the underlying vulnerability. They don't know exactly why this works, but they have uh, theories and they've shared it with the car companies, but the car companies are actually very non-transparent about their issues. Long story short, they found that uh, this attack works against many different cars, Toyotas, Mazdas, many others, uh, Hondas, Kias. The difference is how many unlocks you have to you have to capture. So basically these researchers were using the HackRF. Every time you pressed unlock on the key fob, they would capture a signal. And you can see a waveform of it when you're using something like a HackRF to capture it. What they found is if they can capture you know, anywhere from two to five signals, there's a period of time where they can replay more than one signal. They have to replay more than one signal. But if they replay two, three, or four, the difference depends on car manufacturer, it actually puts the car in some sort of new mode where it resets oh. time. If you replay two codes that have already been played, the worst car I think was, I think it was the Mazda that was affected the worst with only two codes. And if you only play two, basically it tells the car, hey, we have to reset, so go back and old codes are good again. Oh so God. you replayed two codes, it puts the car back into, I'm accepting the old codes again, and then you just replay one of those codes again, and bam, the door unlocks. And again, the only difference is some of the cars took up the five codes to get it into this weird mode, but they're basically resetting the car to allow old codes. And so no real hackery here, just capturing the signal and replaying it with HackRF. You know, as I said, they don't actually know the vulnerability. Uh, I believe they, there are you sometimes you have to get a new key fob because you've lost one and re and and program a new key they believe it has to do with the reprogramming of keys that this is some special way to signal the car to go into a programming mode so that new keys can connect they're not entirely sure but here's the crazy yeah yeah you would think that like so because we saw that other research recently too where basically like they, they've because of that sliding window, because of like people like me that hit unlock 50 times as you're walking out from the store, like it needs some way to resynchronize back with the car at some point. It just sounds like they're yeah. not doing it very securely at all. Yeah, that, that's kind of the sad part of this talk is the researchers admitted they don't really know the underlying reason, just that it works. Uh, but one of the issues that the last thing they found I did find kind of cool, if you think about it, you do need two unlock codes for the worst cars. And that's not too bad because a lot of us do press the button twice in a row just 
because we're human, but some of them need five. And how likely are you to get five unlock codes? You'd have to like follow a person around with a, a RF monitoring device to get all five unlock codes to be able to do this. So it could be a problem. You know, it, it kind of uh, adds a little mitigation to the attack. If people are careful how many times they press the button, they can't get in. Here's the rub. They found it works with unlock codes too, not just lock codes. If you send two unlock codes unlocking the door, that's enough to reset the car. And then it will, as long as you've captured one lock or unlock, oh, I, I mixed that up. It will capture lock codes too, not just unlock codes. So even if someone's locking the door, those, those signals can put it in reset mode too. And it's very common for us to leave our court door car unlock once come back lock one or, or lock twice come back unlock a couple times and then you might have the four codes you need to to reset the car Man, so i'm screwed works with both lock and just... unlock codes yeah yeah because pretty much until like, they fix I it i literally like walking out of whole foods i sit there click 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 yeah. they <laughs> they fun. love you he he basically said that he said folks that do oh, that man. are great uh, and by the way, there's not an easy way. These are all based on the chip, uh, uh, RKE chip, and they had four different manufacturers. Ultimately, those car models use a different manufacturer for this RKE chip. It doesn't seem to be an easy thing to patch, so I'm not sure <laughs> if this will be fixed anytime soon. But it was pretty That's cool. Crazy. I mean, uh, anyone with a three a hundred dollar smart RF radio or a three hundred dollar hack RF. I can do this. By the way, they said all the car manufacturers, they only know it works with Singaporean models. They they haven't tested anywhere else in the world, so they don't know. But my guess is it's probably not any different in other places of the world. So yeah, interesting man. talk. That's nuts. It's cool that we're getting research on that now, too, um, as opposed to just like, you know, what we've seen historically at DEF CON of people hacking the car itself and trying to get it to stop in the middle of the highway. And it makes sense. Like, I, I feel like even with the attention that car manufacturers have had in the last decade, it's still like a lot of it is very black box, not very transparent, like you said. And with radio frequencies specifically, there's a lot of room to make a mistake that completely yeah. unravels your entire system. And I also think from a dystopian perspective, we all often focus on to take over the car hacks because they're interesting and oh man, you could die. But in reality, where's the money in that? You know, there's, uh, unless you're like a terrorist, there's not much a criminal's going to do from making a car crash. So the reality is this kind of simple key fob attack, this is what people are going to be exploiting and are exploiting, by the way. This is how cars get stolen nowadays. So it, it may not be as cool as to take over the entire car network, you know, from a technical standpoint for nerds like us. But I think this is a much more realistic way of how bad guys really are actually exploiting cars. I agree entirely. Um, so one of the talks I actually made it to at, uh, I think this was a black hat. Yes, this would have been at black hat. Uh, was super interesting in that it's on a bit of a technical subject, but it was actually just like a research um, piece on it. And so it's very high level and came away with some like really interesting findings on it. Um, so the talk was called in need of pair review with parent uh, quotations, uh, vulnerable code contributions and co-pilot uh, by quite a few different researchers at New York University and the University of Calgary. Um, so for folks that aren't software developers out there, co-pilot is this new AI powered tool that GitHub came out with in the last year or so. Uh, just Did everyone kind groan of when they said AI powered tool? <laughs> so I'm I know AI is did. real, but buzzword. <laughs> I yes, I thought, oh man, this is total BS. But the reality is, this tool is amazing, and I genuinely okay. believe it is going to change cool. how software is written. Um, so GitHub is the largest open source repository that there is, sure. and so GitHub as a organization now owned by Microsoft has access to a huge amount of source code that random people have written. Uh, everything from like the libraries like URL, URL lib3 that are used in like every single Python project under the sun to that random whatever piece of software that I wrote that has like one view on it, like millions and millions of source code repositories. And what they did is they took all of that code and all of those programming languages 
and fed them into this machine learning AI algorithm to teach it how to program software. And so it comes in the form of a extension that you install in VS Code. And basically it's as you are writing a program, like writing a Python script or writing a even a C program or C++ or literally anything, uh, this little plugin will suggest how to finish whatever function or code you're trying to write. And so like if I'm trying to write a, a function that will delete a user from a database, a SQL database, I might go ahead. Oh, you're posse. I was just going to make fun of you, Mark. I'm like, now I know why Mark likes it so much. He's a lazy programmer and wants the computer exactly. to do it for him. There is no <laughs> such thing going. as a non-lazy programmer, a, by the way. That, that is actually that's absolutely lazy. true. And I think us programmers would say, no, we're efficient. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so like how it works is basically you, as you're writing code, what you should be doing is adding a comment for like explaining what the function does and then giving it a good name and then filling out the contents of it basically. And so this module will see that you wrote a comment saying this function will delete user from database and increment this counter. And then you give it a name like delete user and update database. And then when you go to write the function, it gives you a whole bunch of different suggestions, including like its most favorite pick and then like a couple dozen more uh, potential alternatives to just complete the code. Uh, so write the entire working function. Um, so they baited this uh, over the last year or so. They just released it as a official tool. Now it does have a actual subscription to it, which rubbed a few people the wrong way. But the reality is like, I genuinely believe this is going to change software development because it does a fantastic job at what it's supposed to do. I don't know why it rubs of... people the wrong way. I mean, it's uh, someone makes something that useful. They should be able to make money from Just I, I saw I follow a lot of software engineers and developers on Twitter. And the overall consensus I saw from my feed was, oh man, now they're gonna charge for this. That's a bit lame because they're literally taking all of this open source code to feed it. Um, That's so a good they're point. getting it for free basically, but then charging money for it. But I mean, the reality is they still had to write this model. They still have to regularly train it. So I, my personal belief is it's worth the money. Um, now I, I'm curious if where maybe you haven't finished where the talk is going. Is there any security risk here? I mean, if 100%. it's being fed from open source, there could be vulnerabilities in that code that is learning from, and more importantly, may, it doesn't really know why to use string copy f instead of, or you know, use uh, bounds limited functions versus otherwise. So I'm just curious. <laughs> that is exactly where the talk went. And so they started okay, out by cool. saying like at a high level, what's it good at, what's it bad at? So at a high level, it actually, it struggles with some things like they labeled it as C stuff. So C being like um, memory, um, uh, programs that don't have, you know, good memory controls. So like, it's not good with pointers. It's not good with array length, array lengths. That's because kind of what really I was talking about, by the way, yeah. you know, two forms of functions, you know, you copy something, but there's a form of function that just copies something without any limit to the input, which if you're not paying attention to your buffers can result in a memory overflow, but a there's a different version like of a... the function that will limit it, for instance. So a lot ahead. of it's like efficiency stuff. Like it knows it needs to allocate a buffer to hold this data, but it doesn't necessarily know how big of a buffer to do it. And so since it's machine learning, it just goes, okay, what's the, the average one or the most likely one I need? Not necessarily the most correct or most efficient one. Um, it's also not too good with sequence related errors. It's like use after free issues um, where you need to take in the context of the entire program that may be relatively complex in order to figure out if you're you know, releasing a, a variable or um, correctly. It's also not too great at knowledge-based errors. So they mentioned like ha bad hashing algorithms. Sometimes it would suggest using MD5 and some instead of something more industry approved in terms of hashing algorithms. That's probably um, due to tons of open stores still using MD5. Yes. It probably thinks it's probably the most common, <laughs> which I yeah. bet you it is in open source, unfortunately. But it's really good at things like permissions. Like it's actually really great at setting up applications and web apps with correct permission sets for access. That's good. It's really good at just basic web stuff in general. Um, so like using Flask to set up different services. Um, so it, it, like it's got its pros and cons. And for the most I wonder part, if you it give it a lot of clean, secure code, like if you trained it not on all of open source, but just a subset, I wonder if it's easily fixable without much human interaction. <laughs> So Don't know. Uh, they tested something similar. Basically, this entire discussion, this, this presentation was about testing different parameters to see how what kinds of code it suggested. 
uh, for completing functions. So they set up a scenario basically where it was a basic SQL delete function. So SQL being a database, SQL and code generally being an area where there can be a lot of issues. If you don't write it correctly, you get SQL injection vulnerabilities that lets an attacker basically control whatever they want to do on the database. And so their goal was to create a function that would delete a user um, from a database, basically. Really simple function. And just with a like setting up how you generally would, so adding a comment saying delete a user from the database and update whatever, and then adding a name for the function, um, Copilot came back with uh, 25 suggestions, all of which were valid code, like the functions would work. Six of them were actually vulnerable, meaning they had a SQL injection vulnerability due to like concatenating strings, not using parameterized input, something like that. But the top suggestion was at least safe. So this was their baseline, basically. We wrote this comment and description of the function and then let Copilot suggest, and 25 out of 25 worked, six were vulnerable, top one was safe. And so their research study was basically trying different things, changing different things about the program, about the comments for the function, and seeing how it ended up. So the first one they did was they added uh, Andre Petrov as the author to the source code. So basically set the author name to Andre Petrov. So he's the, the primary uh, contributor to URL lib3, which is the most widely used Python library that there is. And they found that when they told the program like in their source code that Andre Petrov was the author, uh, 25 out of 25 suggestions were still valid code, and it was down to only four vulnerable suggestions then. So just by changing the author name, got rid of two of those vulnerable suggestions for code snippets. When they changed the author name to Hammond Pierce, which was one of the people giving the talks at Black Hat, uh, 24 out of 25 were valid. So one of the code suggestions just straight up didn't work, and 11 of these suggestions were vulnerable then. So even just changing the name, because you'd think the model would say, okay, if it's written by Andre Petrov, well, you know, stuff written by him tends to be written this way, then it suggests better ones. But if it's written by, no offense to Hammond Pierce, this random person, then maybe his code is a little bit different and it tends to be more vulnerable. Interesting. Um, they did a, a check of, so there's this big, uh, goes to the beginning of time battle between using tabs or spaces when writing code, especially in Python. And so when they changed from using spaces in their code to using tabs, the vulnerabilities went up. So 25 out of 25 suggestions were still valid, but nine of them were vulnerable instead of six at the baseline. So I guess, I guess AI has made a ruling. Yeah, if you're a tab yeah. person, guess what? You lose. <laughs> you write more vulnerable code. <laughs> they even said in their talk, take that as you will. Um, <laughs> so then uh, another interesting one. So if you write, they wrote another SQL function right above it. Uh, if that's for an insert statement. And so if you wrote a valid SQL function above it, then uh, 18 out of 25 of the code suggestions for the delete one worked. So it actually decreased the likelihood of it working, but zero of them were vulnerable. If you wrote a vulnerable insert statement above it in the same program, uh, same number of valid, but 17 were vulnerable and the top suggestion was vulnerable to SQL injection. So if you write bad code, you get bad code suggestions uh, is basically what it boiled down to. And that's like the bulk of their talk was basically this is not going if you're already bad at writing code, this isn't going to make you better at it. But if you write decent code, it can help you know, speed up your but efficiency. But I wonder if it could, Mark. I wonder code. if I think what they're finding is based on the training data they used to program this algorithm. I mean, ultimately, they could make a version of this that might still avoid vulnerabilities, even if you are writing bad code or, or at least try to. It can't fix the part you did write. But you know what I mean? If they make sure the training data is only secure, well-written code, they, you know, they're getting results based on everything. Uh, they could still get results just based on secure code with a smaller training subset. There's absolutely who, ways for yeah. GitHub to tune it, you're right. Um, but like the reality, that it's difficult to scale, I think, because what it takes yeah. in, it takes in all of GitHub's code. Well, who's going to go in... and find? Yeah, the whole beauty of yeah. this is no one had to go and pick and choose what code they're training from. It used everything. So yep. yeah, I get it. And it does like, as it's making suggestions, it does it based off of the other source code and the file you're writing, other stuff that you've personally written. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. But basically their main takeaway was, like there's a big issue with automation bias out there where basically as developers, as people, we say, okay, if a computer says it's correct, then it must be correct. Um, and so 
their their suggestion was make sure that if you are a software engineer and you're using Copilot, you don't get caught into assuming that what it's suggesting is the correct way to write something. So basically, their big thing was Copilot must remain a co-pilot going forward. So overall, really interesting study, uh, and I I thought it was a pretty cool one, especially as someone that's personally used Copilot and thinks it's a really cool tool. Awesome. Well, I'm going to go quicker. Uh, another talk I saw at Black Hat was called Charged by an Elephant. It might have had a subheading, but it was given by some Sentinel-1 guys. And by the way, they did a talk on Cyber War, too. If I had time, I would uh, talk about that one. But I found this one interesting and scary. Uh, the Sentinel-1 guys were Tom Heigl, and uh, his name is, uh, the second researcher is Juan Andres Guerrero Sade, uh, who just goes by Jags because it's easier to say. Uh, but anyways, uh, as I mentioned, they did a talk on cyber war, which summarized basically a lot of the attacks in Ukraine were wiper malware. But this talk talked about an APT called Modified Elephant. And I won't go into all the political things, but there's uh, things happening in India politically, and there's an activist group that is against certain leaders now. And these activist groups are peaceful. They aren't doing anything bad, They're there, but they're protesting and they're a big activist group. Long story short, Modified Elephant is talking about how they have indicators that the Indian police, the Pune Police Department, literally purposely hacked these activist computers and planted evidence. Uh, I wish I could go into detail, but if we want to cover a lot of talks, we, we don't want to keep you here for over an hour. But but they this wasn't just anecdotal evidence. These guys had things like network sniffs from the, the laptops in question. A lot of they showed indicators of where these attacks were coming from, other modifiers of of of, of you know, why they really were attached to the Pune police. But then they would load up a document onto these computers and you could tell 100%. This wasn't just the activist claiming they were hacked. You could see actual signs that this document was placed that, that subtly was talking about assassinating one of these political figures Whoa. and they arrested these activists because of it you know it's kind of funny not only is it weird that this evidence was planted but just a day after it or a few days after it happened suddenly the police show up oh that's random uh, right. how did they suddenly know that they had the the so and these guys went to jail one of them died in jail i, I don't know exactly why but it was during the pandemic so it might be covid related so they're they're now by the way exonerated they're not in jail anymore but it was a really scary example and by the way super unsophisticated they showed the stupid ass phishing uh that these uh, it, phishing you shouldn't have clicked on but it the saddest thing about this was and, and sentinel one even mentioned this unsophisticated malware very basic techniques but authorities so-called authorities who are hacking people planting evidence arresting them and some people dying because of it so i'm skipping a lot of the interesting detail it's worth seeing the video of it if it ever comes out but i just found it interesting because of the whole idea of authorities planting evidence and having such they did not hide their tracks and it was so unsophisticated that it was almost super obvious that they had done this. So interesting. That's really sad. Sure. Yeah. It's always crappy when hacking turns to something that at least uh, not necessarily directly causes, but leads to someone potentially being hurt or dying. dying. That's nuts. And um, I mean, to break freedoms too. I mean, I, I have yeah. no stake in whatever the political sides are. I don't know if the activists would be considered, you know, I, I honestly didn't pay attention to all the detail there. It's outside of my politics. But if it's just plain activism, it doesn't matter what side you're on. You shouldn't be targeted in this way by the what's supposed yeah. to be the the moral authoritative good people, the the police that are supposed to be protecting people. So, man, that's nuts. Well, let's end with one that I think both you and I went to. Um, this is one called how Russia is trying to block Tor by Roger Dingledine, which we discussed in our little preview. And poor guy still has an interesting last name. Um, but this one uh, basically boiled down to uh, a developer from the Tor project. So one of the people responsible for creating the Onion router, the software that fuels the dark web, uh, discussing how uh, Russia specifically and other nations are trying to censor access to the dark web and the Onion network. 
Um, so he basically broke it out as it's, it's basically like an arms race, like a lot of the technologies that they come up with, um, Russia and other countries find ways to potentially block. And then the Tor project has to find ways to circumvent that blocks. Um, so part of it is uh, Russia tries to block Tor access by IP address. Um, and uh, obviously, if you block an IP, all you need to do is create a new IP address and you could potentially get around that block. Um, but then he went into some of the more detailed things like how um, Russia and other organizations can identify the Tor protocols themselves and potentially block access to the network. Um, so, for example, using packet analysis, they can identify or at least try and fingerprint Tor activity across the network. And as a cybersecurity vendor, like we sell a firewall product. And in that firewall product, it's got a tool called application control. And we actually attempt to give network administrators the ability to block Tor access through their enterprise networks. And it is extremely difficult sometimes. Um, so they went about how like Tor gets around some of this. Basically, the Onion Router software um, takes uh, takes care of the the actual privacy protections, and then they use these like these plugins for the transport side of things. Uh, so one of those plugins is called Obs4, so Obfuscation4, uh, where it basically designs uh, it tries to make the network traffic completely unrecognizable. So basically, they theorize that. There's this long tail, as they call it, of network traffic out there that looks like just random stuff. So like if HTTP and HTTPS are the most commonly used protocols on the internet, maybe DNS is potentially even more commonly used, like going down the train of you know WebRTC, um, other FTP, SSH, like all these other protocols, you end up with this long tail of just random looking protocols. And if you're a sensor, uh, you have to make a decision of do I block all of those random things that I can't accurately identify, uh, or do I allow it? And so if you block it, you may end up blocking a huge amount of legitimate traffic, cause more friction, which, you know, if you're a, a hostile nation out there trying to censor your individuals, that user friction may not be the most important thing to you, but it could cause potential issues and revolts against whatever censorship you're doing. Um, so do you either block all that or do you allow it through? And so OBS4 as a plugin assumes that they're going to allow that random noise through. And it basically creates randomized looking headers and encrypts the data in a way where it just looks like random noise out there. Uh, they've also got Snowflake, which is just a WebRTC transport plugin. It's designed to look like a video call and specifically designed to look like specific video software like Skype or Teams or Zoom. Um, they actually mentioned one implementation they had that was supposed to be like Skype, but they had an extra extension in it. And so Russia was able to identify it based off that extension and block it. But as soon as they tore, removed that extension, uh, Russia would allow it through because they were still allowing zoom at that point or Skype at that point. Uh, they also mentioned meek, which uses domain fronting. So basically Tor will connect to azure.com. So in the encryption setup for that, the server name identifier, basically the only publicly unencrypted visible identification in this will just be azure.com. And once it sets up that encrypted connection, the uh, host header within that uh, will then be the actual bridge that it's trying to connect to. So long story short, you either have to block all connections to Azure uh, or allow this through. And so they actually mentioned that Russia did at one point block all connections to Azure in an attempt to block Tor and basically rendered a lot of Office 365 and Microsoft tools unusable for about 36 hours until they fixed it. Um, By the so way, the one interesting thing you might have got to it is uh, somebody inside Russia sued the Russian government for doing for illegally blocking Tor. Uh, Russia uh, sued the Russian censorship ministry for kind of breaking their own law. I mean, the Russian censorship ministry is supposed to be against censorship, and yet they're the censors. Uh, but the strange thing was, you know, the Russian judicial system is presumably also controlled by the government, and yet they won. They won the case. The judge actually ruled against them and uh, told them not to block anymore. They, and I think the result of that was they allowed people to get to the Tor website, but they still did all the blocking you're talking about on the back end. Yep, so this discussion was just all about like these different 
things that Russia has done to try and block access to Tor, like literally blocking Tor.org or Tor.ru or whatever it is. Um, and then things Tor has done to get around it. And so they mentioned one of their evasion techniques is using a Telegram responder. So basically, Russia doesn't block Telegram as a service, as a messaging service. So as a user of Tor, you can send a request and say, hey, give me a set of IP addresses that I can connect to as a bridge. And they even have some logic in there to say, okay, so if it's a older, more established Telegram account, then it's probably not like a Russian censorship bot trying to get the latest IPs. So I'll give them some actual good ones. But if it's a brand new account, uh, then I'll give them this other block of IPs that like I'm okay if those get blocked instantly because those aren't actually the real ones. Um, they also, they're working on building a logic to track like reputation. So if you're a user of Tor and in general, the things you connect to don't get blocked, then you probably aren't working for the Russian government or some other sensor. So you'll continue getting IP addresses that aren't blocked. But on the flip side, if you're a Tor user and every single IP that you're ever given gets blocked, well, then you're probably working for one of these censorship people. So we'll stop giving you IPs entirely, basically. Um, really interesting, like, thought process on that of like, how do you like identify these sensors and stop them from being able to just jump on everything that you give them? They also mentioned that the they good have- news is they do have to hurt themselves too, as you yes. mentioned. And they've actually, so Tor mentioned, they've got some insiders in the Russian government sensor system too, that yeah, were that basically cool. telling them how it works too. Um, so there's people within the machine trying to fight against the machine too, which is kind of neat. By the way, simple takeaway for everyone is they did a call out. There's not many snowflakes or bridging Tor users out there. The, to, to contribute to this, you have to be a bridge. You, you, you have to allow yourself to be a bridge or maybe sign up for Snowflake. There's less of them. Uh, as Russia was censored, more of them started popping up, presumably Russian users themselves. But you can help out censorship around the world by doing this. You know, yeah. Mark, I'm going to give another uh, DEF CON talk because I have to give it and I, I have never going to give you up. I have to Rick oh, your man. podcast. Please don't. So I have one of my favorite talks is uh, it was called The Big Rick, How I Rick Rolled My High School District and Got Away With It. Yes. Uh, by um, Min Dong. Uh, by the way, this high school kid, 19, just graduated from high school. I'll go really fast, but this is not a super sophisticated hack. He called it, you know, script kitty stuff, but he was, this is pen testing stuff. Basically, when he was a freshman, he was kind of a TA type person for one of the labs. And during that time, he did slow scans of not just his school, but there's all kinds of shared software connecting to this entire school district. And uh, it was the Rolling Meadows High School that's his own school. And as he enumerated their network from the inside, he found lots of cool things like IPTV systems and stuff like that. Uh, for instance, one of the IPTV systems was something the entire district shared. It was called Avidia. It has a player, a streamer, and a server. Imagine you go into a high school and there's all kinds of TVs that have like the latest high school news on them, just broadcasting a loop of news and projectors in classrooms. Every single projector is connected and very highly digital and uh, things like morning announcements and projected news gets projected in lots of places. Basically, I won't share all the details of the hack. It, it, it was very interesting, but he found, you know, all kinds of stupid security practices. Uh, surprisingly, not always default passwords, but really stupid passwords that were found from other systems and reused. He basically got access to all these projector systems. And he found an interesting way to create a scheduled task, uh, which he could actually take over, not just all the projectors and TVs in his school, but all the school, uh, all the district schools. And the day before considering, and by the way, he found all of this while he was a freshman, then the pandemic happened and he came back as a senior and he was going to be reporting all this. He's actually kind of a white height type of guy. He is planning, he's written up all of this and was planning to report it to this district. But when he became a senior, he's like, oh yeah, senior prank. Hmm. So the night before deciding to do a senior prank based on this, they also found access to the audio announcement system. So, you know, when speakers <laughs> go, hey, everybody. And uh, 
I won't share all the neat ways that, that they hacked that because it was this was a last minute 24 hour. How do we get access? They almost gave up hope it was possible. Long story short, they did get access and were able to uh, change the eight second announcement that happened every morning to one that was strangely something like three minutes and 11 seconds. And you might guess what it would be. So long story short, day of like the senior prank day. Bam, he's able to turn all of the TVs and the projectors to Rick Ashley's, you know, Rick Roll, as well as making the the, the announcement system all over the school, Rick Roll, everyone the in the school district. District. That's district. Nuts. <laughs> yeah. And and he has videos that students took in gifts. Uh, so just hilarious. This to me is a classic DEF CON prankster type hack. Uh, no zero day here. No new. Although he did detail a lot of issues with the uh, videos players, but just simple stuff, but just ingenious. Now, here's the key thing of how I got away with it. He wrote a 48 document in detail of, of all the things he did to gain access. And they anonymously delivered that to the school district. And by the way, the school district, when they got it, they sent back a letter to the anonymous email thanking them and asking them to meet, which, of course, everyone would think, oh, it's a trap. But he's like, OK, you know, this sounds legit. And he met with them of his the other folks that helped him. He was the only one on camera. But it turns out the school was being honest. You know, they just they thought, hey, this is a prank we're not going to prosecute for. We just want to thanks for sharing this and help us make it better. So in the end, I think it was pretty cool That's how the great. school district helped him. So that was a great talk. I, I think we should end for that now, Mark. But I will say there is another talk called Tor Darknet OPSEC. It's given by a Silk Road type drug guy who went to jail for being caught. And he talks about OPSEC. If, if, if you are a underground marketplace, which, by the way, not a great thing to do. He recommends against it. But he talks about how how hard OPSEC really is and what Tor and other things really can and can't do to protect you, basically how he got caught. So that was interesting to if you catch yeah, the YouTube and video. So that is a that was a DEF CON talk as well, too. And DEF CON yep. has posted all of these online on their website and they'll be available probably on YouTube by the time you listen to this as well, too. So, yeah, I saw that one. Definitely recommend checking that one out as well, too. And again, like all of the DEF CON talks, Black Hat's a little more. You got to pay for access in general. They do tend to pop up at some point on YouTube. But DEF CON, if I you weren't at the conference. I will say half of the talks are repeats, and the DEF CON one is the uncensored. So in many of the Black Hat talks, you can get it at DEF CON for free. Yep. So if you weren't able to attend or you missed one of the ones you wanted to see, definitely check out defcon.org and identify the talk on there. But yeah, man, overall, great conference. I loved how our CTF turned out. It did impact my ability to see as many of the talks I wanted to see, but luckily I was able to catch most of them after the fact. Um, and I guess 363 days or so uh, yeah, until the, so. Uh, the next one. But and I didn't catch uh, conference flu either, so that's a plus. Yeah, somehow dodged that one with conference flu ultra edition going around this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, cool. good to be home. We'll see you uh, next year if I'm equally as excited to go back to Las Vegas in the middle of summer again. I guess we'll just have to see. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. Once at Hacker Summer Camp, I took my digital badge and put it around my <laughs> <Okay>. neck. <laughs> around my neck. Around That's your all. Neck. <laughs>